It's so good to see you here today on this beautiful fall day. I'm not going to complain about the weather. Nope, not me. But I would like to remind you all that it's not yet winter. Just to help you there. It's good to see you as we've gathered today. We've had a wonderful time in worship already as we have come to gather in God's house and we've united our hearts together this morning with a common goal of lifting up the good name of Jesus whose death for us is our means of abundant life. Hopefully we've had time this morning to prepare our hearts, to settle in, to push all the distractions that we bring into this place, and they are many, aren't they? Distractions of home and work, distractions of family and health, distractions of what we're doing later today and just the busyness of the schedule. Hopefully we've had time in these last few moments to just push all of that to the periphery. And allow our hearts to just rest and settle in today as we prepare to receive God's word, to ponder what he's saying, and then by his strength and by his power to faithfully apply it to our lives. It is to those ends that I have been working and to those ends that I've been praying this morning. So uh, we're going to go to Mark chapter 3 and begin our time in the word today. Mark chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. We're going to start in verse 7. I'm going to read to verse Uh, 19 this morning. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they should crush him. For he had healed many, So that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Well, this morning... As we have seen uh, in the Gospel of Mark up to this point, Jesus unveiling and revealing this new kingdom, we're going to pick right up. We find, I've organized my thoughts around two very familiar phrases. The first is hide and seek. Alright, so the the first portion of this passage, I've I've just entitled hide and seek because it struck me as funny that as, as often as Jesus tried to hide from the crowd, they continued to find him. He was a really bad hide and seek player. He was good at everything else. But he really stunk at this one. So there, Jesus is retreating yet again, and the crowd still finds him. He continues to evade them, and yet they come. No matter where he goes, they find him, and they find him in large numbers. Hordes of them find him and press in. They follow him from all over the region. From the north, the south, the east, and the west, wherever he was, the, the message of what he was doing, his reputation, the, the, the buzz got out and people flocked to where Jesus was. 
There is a sense of intrigue and fascination that accompanies the crowd. They want to see the, the miracle worker. They want, to, they want to see this man who's doing all this crazy stuff. But we've mentioned this before. It's helpful to remember that crowds, the crowds were not necessarily made up of good, um, well-meaning disciples and followers. They were largely comprised of people who were interested in the show or the free meal. Or did they just want to see this new thing that was happening? They wanted to see the miracles because it was pretty amazing what he was doing. But the people in need of healing heard about Jesus healing, so they showed up to be healed. Generally speaking, they weren't necessarily following him because they believed him to be the Son of God, the new king bringing in a new kingdom. In general... They were following him for the meals, the healing, the physical needs. And in fact, Mark presents to us the crowd not as a sign of a spiritual movement, but actually as a hindrance to the movement of God. As though the throngs of people get in the way of what Jesus is doing. Not always helping what Jesus is doing. There's a word for us today in that. It's not the point, but there is a word that we would guard our hearts lest we earnestly seek the blessing and not the Lord who gives the blessing. There are times in our lives where if we're honest, we have, we have set our sights on the blessing of God's movement and not necessarily just knowing the heart of God himself. So Jesus asks for an escape plan. He tells them, you need to get some boats ready. Well, why? Why does he need boats ready? Because the crowd is dangerous. It's large. It's, it's pressing in. He says, lest he should be crushed by the crowds. It seems like we've seen this one a time or two, right? You, you, can't, you can't go a year without seeing some group of hooligans in England crushing a crowd at a soccer match, right? Or pressing in an, at an event being trampled at a rock concert. Before you know it, people are pinned against a wall and then they can't move. They, somebody gets suffocated or stumbles and gets trampled. Crowds, have, they take on a mind of their own and, and they're, they're alarming and they're dangerous. A couple years ago, uh, my family and I had just finished up a week in Michigan doing some ministry at a camp in the Upper Peninsula there. And we decided, we asked ourselves, Amanda and I, we said, what could possibly make an exhausting week of ministry, and four little children, and a two-day drive back home, what could make that better? Oh, I know. Let's stop in Chicago. And so we did. And we, 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 couldn't, we didn't stay downtown. We stayed outside of the city. We rode a train in. And we decided that with, this is a number of years ago. This wasn't like last summer. We were still pushing a stroller with Evie in it. Um, we decided that we would just navigate the public transportation system of Chicago with those children because it sounded, what are you groaning for? It sounded like it'd be a lot of fun. We'd see, we'd see the city and I would have a breakdown. What, I mean, what, what could be better? What could be better than that? So we, we rode in, we got all the kids situated, we, we, we got out of the street, we, we looked at the map and we figured out where we were going and we hopped on a bus. And it was around that time that we realized that we chose to, to stay in Chicago the same week as 2.3 million of our friends who had come for the Chicago Air Show. What a blessing it was to see all them. And we got on a bus, 
And the four of us, and me and Amanda, four little children, one stroller, I was like a pack mule. I had a backpack, and I'm carrying a stroller, and I've got kids in arm, and we're, we get in the bus, and we think, oh, look, here's a nice open seat at the very back. We can all sit down together. So we sat down, and then it filled in like I was in Beijing, right? People just pressing in on top of us, and then we had to get off. We had to get off the bus through the crowds of people with the children, and the stroller. And so we start making our way through the crowd. The, do- the doors are open and we're pulling people. I stepped off the bus thinking I had almost made it. And I looked up and I saw Drew. Sorry, buddy. I saw Drew sitting in his seat playing on a video game. As the whole family had stepped out of the bus. And I am the last thing standing between him and a ride I don't know, to where, who knows where, to the, the zoo, I guess, right? And I reached up and I grabbed him and I pulled him and I was like, get out of the bus. Crowds can take on a dangerous feel, right? And some of us don't like crowds, right? Like me? Like that was, I'm having a panic attack now even thinking about it. Jesus said, look, the, the crowds are pressing in. These people have needs and they won't stop until they come close. So they have a, an escape plan ready. Jesus, we're told, is confronted in the crowds by people wanting to touch him to be healed, also by people who are, who are um, being oppressed by unclean spirits. And when they find him, they fall at his feet and they cry out loudly that he is the Son of God. So, so now we have this this throng of people, and then this loud commotion by people laying on the ground, crying out that he is the Son of God. And he tells them to be quiet. He doesn't want them to say that, which we might look at that and wonder, wait, why is that a bad thing? If he's coming to reveal himself for who he is, if he's coming, as we're told in John, that in him is all this this fullness of of, uh, grace and truth, he reveals to us who God the Father is and what he's like, then why is it a bad thing that that's getting out? Well, these, these unclean spirits aren't doing it in, a, in an act of submission and honor. There's, there's a sense of sarcasm and it's almost aggressive in the way that they're doing it. And, and you remember that, remember that passage in John where, maybe you don't, where Jesus turns the water to wine at the wedding feast in Cana and, and he looks at his mother and says, it's not my time yet. Right? There, there is a time for the full revelation of God in Christ. The glorification of the Son, it comes through the death, the burial, and the resurrection, and the Passion Week. There is a time for it, but it's not yet now. And so he tells them to be quiet and sends them out. Their cries at this point aren't very helpful at all. His hour had not yet come. But there is, a, there, there is a, an ironic twist to all this, that the the demons and the unclean spirits see Jesus for exactly who he is. And the religious crowd who claims to represent him <laughs> couldn't find him in a wet paper bag. Right? It is, it is interesting, at least, to see that. That they've identified him as public enemy number one. While the unclean spirits know exactly who he is. So the first, the first portion I, I entitled Hide and Seek. The second portion I've entitled Tag, You're It. So, I don't know. I was just playing games with the kids, I guess. All right. So he goes up on a mountain away from the crowds. 
The next scene we get, he's up on the mountain away from the crowds. And he takes a chosen group. He doesn't take everyone. He doesn't take everyone. He doesn't put out a, an ad in the newspaper that says, anybody who's interested in being an apostle of mine, come up on the mountain at 6 p.m. I'll meet you there and we'll conduct interviews. He doesn't do that at all. He goes to the mountain and he brings with him those whom he has chosen. He selected them. He commissioned them. In this moment, he is assembling a team. These men are going out to launch the initial wave of gospel ministry. There's an interesting note here. That this is the beginning of the glorious and global spread of God's kingdom. Right here. The amazing impact that Jesus Christ of Nazareth has had on the world cannot be overstated. And here on a mountainside, Jesus gathers a few friends and he sends them out. And right here is the beginning of it all. And who did he gather? He gathered zealots and tax collectors who hated each other. Right? He gathered fishermen. He, he gathered the last, the lost, and the least. He gathered those whom the world would not look at with great honor and respect. Not many wise, not many noble. He gathered them. He chose what was perceived as weak and foolish and then by his power confounded the wise and the strong of this world. It was these men who turned the world upside down with the message of the gospel like we find in Acts. And you have to wonder, don't you, if you wouldn't have looked at this group assembled there together and hung your head in desperation and asked, what in the world are you going to do with these guys? Consequently, I feel the same way about the 425 matchup with my Eagles and the Patriots today. I'm looking at this roster going, what are you going to do with this mess? We're in trouble. You might have looked at that group of guys up on the mountainside and gone, what in the world did you just get yourself into? Jesus, don't you want this thing to succeed? Don't you want your kingdom to grow? Why are you giving it to these guys? Shouldn't you find the influential, the wealthy, the powerful, the educated? Shouldn't you find somebody who has a little respect in the community? Who's going to carry your message? You need to find better representatives. This is no real prospect at all. It reminds me of a story that I, I think I've told here before. We, we grew up outside of uh, Reading, Pennsylvania, which is real close to, uh, I was in between Philadelphia and Reading. And, and in Reading, the, Phillies, uh, the Philadelphia Phillies had a minor league baseball team that played there. And so my, my family would go up and get tickets, and my grandfather was a huge baseball fan. He loved the Phillies, and he loved the Red Sox. Just so you know, by the way, the longer I live in New York, the more I love the Red Sox. And, I, uh, and it's to honor him, though. It has nothing to do with you. It's, it's to honor my, the legacy of my grandfather, who told me from the time I was a boy that Ted Williams was the greatest baseball player that ever lived. So I, uh, we would go up and we'd watch the Phillies. And legend has it in my home that there was one day in the, in the 70s that my, my grandfather and his brother, who loved the Reading Phillies, went up to see these guys play. And they saw this new prospect at third base, and he was out swinging the bat. And, and my grandfather leans over to his brother and says, there's no way that bum will ever make it into the big leagues. And that bum just happened to be Hall of Famer Mike Schmidt. They were watching him play, and they said, he, he just doesn't have it. 
He doesn't have that thing. He can't swing the bat. He's not fielding well. He's never going to make it. He's one of the greatest baseball players to ever live. I imagine that sitting there on that mountainside looking at these group of people, we would have thought, oh my goodness, there's no way this is going to move. There's no way this goes forward. There's no way. Who could have seen this coming? But he called to them, and they came to him. And once again, we see the effect and the power of God on, the call, on, on men's lives. You can see why some have suggested through the years that it is irresistible. He commissions them to join him in the work. And they go and then they give their lives for the work. And he gives them a job description. They go out preaching. The disciples are preachers. They are messengers. That does not mean they are all pastors. That means they are proclaimers. The disciples of Jesus are proclaimers of a new message. That's their, that's their primary role. They are announcing the coming of God's kingdom. Remember, what is the message of Jesus? It is the message that he gave the disciples. And the message of Jesus is that the time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is the message of Christ. And it is the message that he gave to the apostles. So the apostles were called, appointed by Jesus, sent out to announce the arrival of this new kingdom and to demonstrate the power of the new kingdom over the old way of the old kingdom. They had authority to cast out demons. See, Jesus possesses the authority of God and he displays it. And here he gives it to the apostles. I mentioned in this series a couple weeks ago that it was borrowed authority, and honestly, a better, a better word would have been that it was gifted authority, that, that its source and its origin wasn't from them, it was placed upon them by Jesus himself. Out of the storehouse of his own authority, he gives it to these men. New kingdom authority to express power over sickness, illness, disease, and demons. Is it any wonder when you open the book of Acts and you see the spread of the early church that this is exactly what you see? As they receive the authority, all authority has been given, and now I'm sending you. You will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Christ receives the authority. He has the authority from God and he places it upon his disciples and he sends them out. And it's time to expand the kingdom. He equips them for the job and sends them. He does not send them without the equipping. He gives them what they need to do the job. Namely, his authority. And then there's a bit of a roll call. We get to see the names of these guys. Simon whom he later named Peter, and James, and John, the, the sons of thunder, he called them. That could have been because of their preaching, it was so passionate, it could have been just because of their character. These are the guys who did ask later if they could call down fire from heaven. So it was like, maybe they just had that personality, right? They just wanted to stir up a fight. They were called the sons of thunder. It was Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew, the tax collector, Levi, who we just met a couple weeks ago, Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and then also Judas, who betrayed him. These are the guys. This is the team. 
These are the ones that Jesus has appointed to carry his gospel to the ends of the earth. And he sends them out. All right, so what? What does that all mean for us today? What does that have to do with you and me? Well, first I think we could see this, that Jesus is calling to himself a new people. He, the, the, word, the word calls himself is actually better translated makes. He, he makes a group of people. He appoints them. They are to go out. They are to continue the work that he's doing. They are to continue the work of preaching, of proclaiming and announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God. Now when, when we think of preaching, and I do this myself, when we think of preaching in the church context, we think of this, delivering a sermon, an exposition in the gathered assembly of God's people. It doesn't have to mean that. It's just proclaiming. It's announcing. It's heralding a message. It's, it's revealing and sharing the message. It's, it's a proclamation. And with it, these men possessed a demonstration of the power of God's kingdom over the kingdoms of this world. A power of God's kingdom over sin. The power of God's kingdom over death, over sickness and illness and disease. They possessed that power. He calls himself a new people, a new team, and he sends them out. His plan from the very beginning is to appoint men and women to continue his work. Do you see that? Do you see what's happening? Right, He's there. He could do it all himself. He's not bound by, by limitations the way we are. He's eternal. He, he can read and perceive the minds and the thoughts of men. He doesn't need them to go do this thing, and yet that's his plan. To appoint them, to empower them, and send them as his representatives. And secondly, this morning, you can't help but look at the humble beginnings of these guys and marvel at the work of God in their lives. Not many wise and not many noble are called to this. It should give us hope. It surely does for me. I want to serve God. I, I want to give my life for his purposes. I, I want to make a difference every single day, but I know that I'm nothing special. I know, I know that I don't have exceptional gifts and abilities for him. I certainly don't have an exceptional, exceptional morality that people should imitate. I'm definitely not the sharpest tool in the shed. But God called me to himself and to church ministry, not because of my abilities, but because of his goodness and his grace. And he takes the weak and the foolish things of this world people included, and he uses them to confound and to shame the strong and the wise. What am I dragging on about here? Have you ever felt like you wanted to serve God, but you just didn't have what it takes? Have you ever sensed God calling you to something, moving in your heart, beginning to soften you for a new work, and then all of a sudden you hear the whispers of the enemy saying, wait, I, don't, I can't do that. I can't talk to my neighbor about the gospel. I can't serve in that ministry. I can't take that step of faith. I can't go on that mission trip. Who do I think I am? I'm a mess. I don't have any right to stand there and teach a small group. I, 
I can't teach a class. I can't serve with kids. Have you ever felt called by God, pushed and nurtured, stirred in your heart, and thought, well, I just, I would. I would serve him, and I want to, but I just don't have what it takes. Or maybe that you weren't the right kind of person for ministry. What kind of person does Jesus call? The tax collectors and the sinners. The fishermen and the zealots. The liars and the cheats. The deceivers and the broken. Yeah, I think we're all the right kind of person. You know, the kind of person that Jesus doesn't use is the proud one. The puffed up one. The the one that won't yield to him. The one that won't submit to him. The one who has no need for him. Those people, they're not receiving the grace of Jesus. The Lord takes these seeds of faith, those, those, those rumblings in our heart, as improbable as it may seem, and he works them into a fruitful demonstration of his ministry in your life and his glory. Be reminded this morning, wherever you are and whatever God is calling you to do, be reminded today that the God who began a good work in you will carry it through to completion. That the one who started it is faithful and he's going to do it. He's going to do it. And the final thing I think we can see this morning is that the pattern of the calling here is quite intriguing to me as I ponder ponder application. Now, the call of Jesus on our lives is, is a little different than apostleship. These men, they spoke and their words were recorded in the scriptures as, as the infallible word of God. So they were, they were a special group, a special a group that he appointed, a, a SWAT team, a special forces team for a specific season in the church ministry. But there is a pattern for all of us in this. We are all called to discipleship, to follow Jesus, to lay down our lives and take up our cross and follow him. And it was at Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. So that legacy that you carry with the name Christian places you in the camp of disciples. And there is a pattern for discipleship here. That the calling of God on our lives is both to be with him and to be sent out by him. And you can't have one without the other and experience the abundant life of faith. It is a calling of, first, fellowship and communion. The the calling on the apostles, he calls them to be with him and to go out for him. And that calling is still the same. We are called to be with him, to be united to him in faith bonded with him, connected to him, drawing from Christ the life-giving resources of the vine. We are called to be one with him through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a calling of fellowship, but what does that ongoing fellowship look like? For the apostles, it looked like walking with him, eating with him, spending time with him, listening to him, praying with him. It was was an involved relationship. And Christ is calling his disciples today to the same. Fellowship with him. And what does that look like? It looks like listening to his voice. 
Spending time in his word. Gathering with his people. Submitting to the authority of his word. Praying to him and communing with him. Drawing close to him and resting in him. Treasuring and worshiping and cherishing him. He calls us to fellowship. But that is not the sum total of our calling. Because he also calls us to partnership. Because he sends us out. He sends us out. We are to draw near and then we're to scatter. And as we do, what does that look like? It looks like us moving into our community, empowered by his spirit and preaching his message. And I'm going to go back to this again. Preaching doesn't mean that you are a deliverer of a sermon. It doesn't mean that you have been trained or, or called to produce exposition. Preaching in this sense means that you're willing and empowered by God to announce the arrival of his kingdom. That Jesus has come and with him has come the new kingdom of God. Repent and believe in the gospel. We are empowered by his spirit. So what does this partnership look like? It means, means we go out, we proclaim the message. It means that we go out under the authority of his spirit and we make disciples. It means that we demonstrate new kingdom power alive in us. Power over sin, over darkness in this world. It means that we move among our people, whoever they may be, as salt and light. That we find such joy and obedience to him that they see our good deeds and they marvel and they glorify our Father in heaven. It means that we see ourselves not only as his family, but also as his partners, his ambassadors, as good soldiers in the fight. We have been graciously enlisted to partner in the work that he began, the work that he empowers, ultimately the work that he does and that he's promised to bring to completion. And in his mercy and his goodness, he gave us that job. What a gift. So here's the problem, though. Some of us are really, really good at drawing near. But we have no outlet. And we don't share it. We don't tell anybody what he's doing. And we don't, we don't put our lives and, and his glory on display by, by opening up and revealing that to people. We're, we're really good at drawing close. But we're scared to death to take it out. We're stunted. We're all bound up. If that was a human body, you'd get sick. If that's a body of water, it gets stagnant and kills everything in it. You need both the close fellowship with Christ and also the outlet to serve him and proclaim his message. You're called to both. And some of us get it backwards. We focus so much energy in, in service, but we don't draw close enough to have any depth and we wear ourselves out. You need communion with Jesus to be filled up with his spirit, to be strengthened in the word, edified and built up, and then you need an outlet to go share that with people. And my friends, I want to encourage you today, you don't have to look that far. He's placed you right now in a circle of people who need to hear the life-giving message that you know. And he's already given you the power to, to, to do the work that he's calling you to do. He's already prepared the way for you. He's given you the tools that you need, strengthened you with his power, and he's promised to do the work in you. 
Don't be afraid. Jesus calls himself, to himself, a group of 12 men. He appoints them and sends them out. And their calling, my friends, I believe is the same calling that's on our lives. To draw near to him in fellowship and communion. And then to carry that message to the world around us. So the big question here today is this. In an honest moment, where are you in all of that? Are you drawing near? Is fellowship and communion with God a priority in your life? If I looked at your daytimer, if I saw your calendar and the way that you spend your day, would somebody be able to look at that and go, wow, they are prioritizing their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have an outlet for ministry? Are you taking... That's, that's not the right question. You have an outlet. God gave it to you. Are you taking the opportunities that he's placed in front of you? With your coworkers, your friends, your family members, your children, your neighbors, classmates, teammates? Are you taking those opportunities? Are you, are you finding the opportunities and taking the chance to tell them what God has done in your life? To reveal to them this new king and a new kingdom? God's calling us to both. He's calling us to both. And I imagine that the same fruit that the disciples saw where they turned the world upside down, that our Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, I imagine that that same fruit might be available to us, that we would see our communities turned upside down as the power of the gospel moves house to house, as his people draw near to him and go out for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the word of God and its power in our lives. Thank you for the start of the kingdom expanse that we're watching here in, in the book of Mark. God, we're, we're blown away to think of how you took these men on the side of a mountain and began to turn the world upside down. And we thank you for their example and the hope that we have in that. Lord, I pray for our church family that we would be strengthened in you, that we would not be afraid of the opportunities that are available to us, but that we'd be overwhelmed with a sense of, of calling and destiny. That, Lord Jesus, you call us here for such a time as this. You've revealed yourself to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we've received the gospel by grace and through faith, and you've called us to this place, these people, this time, to do your work. God, strengthen us for the work at hand. Help us to be faithful and trust you that you'd make us fruitful. Pray that our people would draw close in fellowship, be filled up in you, overjoyed in you, and then with passion and conviction, send us out so that others might know the joy that we found as well. In Jesus' name we pray.